This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. This hour, you'll meet Mickey Willis, the filmmaker behind Plandemic and Plandemic 2, the most censored and banned documentaries in history. And then, towards the tail end of the hour, syndicated U.S. talk radio host and one-time libertarian candidate for U.S. Vice President Wayne Allen Root will be here with a prediction where the Democratic Party pushes unpopular President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris aside in favor of Hillary Clinton. Coming up in hour two, writer-researcher Mary Joyce, the founder of SkyShipsOverCashiers.com, We'll be here to discuss images from Google Earth of what appear to be structures emerging from the ice in Antarctica, which could be remnants of an ancient civilization. She'll also talk about the latest sightings of little people and the human side of Bigfoot. You've seen the documentaries Plandemic and Plandemic Indoctrination, and now, over the next hour, you're going to meet the filmmaker responsible. Plandemic. Fear is the Virus, Truth is the Cure, co-authored and edited by independent filmmaker Mickey Willis, tells the incredible story of the most banned documentary in history. Researching the controversy arising after the release of this viral phenomenon known as Plandemic, an investigative journalist sets out to disprove and debunk claims made throughout the film. Instead, this journalist opens a Pandora's box to witness firsthand an underworld of corruption, lies, and the darkest of unsolved mysteries. The result? A fascinating behind-the-scenes account about the making of Plandemic and Plandemic indoctrination, an expose of the truth behind the origins of COVID-19, and an alarming examination of individuals such as Dr. Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates and organizations like the CDC, the NIH, the World Health Organization, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, among others, driving the global vaccination agenda, and a look at the tech giant and mainstream media forces doing their utmost to silence and suppress the veracity of these findings. Investigative filmmaker Mickey Willis focuses his unflinching lens on the two key subjects, virologist Dr. Judy Mikovits, who speaks frankly 
about the machinations for control and profit corrupting individuals and institutions tasked with overseeing public health. And Dr. David E. Martin, whose research and shocking data corroborate allegations of conflicts of interest. The U.S. media and fact-checkers condemned the two documentaries as a dangerous conspiracy theory. Today, the two-part bombshell is being hailed globally for warning the world of the crimes against humanity that are just now being uncovered. Plandemic was not Willis's first film and he spent years as a filmmaker and interviewer. He held the first ever Elevate Film Festival in 2006 and went on to produce such films as Weed the People, The Shadow Effect, and Be Brave and Impact. Mickey Willis, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Richard. Great to be here. The mainstream media likes to identify you as former actor, former model. So how did you become involved in taking this deep dive into the origins of COVID. Well, even that's kind of, kind of funny that, that they brought up, the, the media did its part to bring up the fact that I, I modeled for about a year when I was 19 years old. I'm in my 50s now, so it's kind of funny that that's even being dredged up. And that was originally brought up to kind of discredit me as a researcher and as a filmmaker. Um, but, you know, the, the answer to your question is, is my interest in Western medicine was perked when my brother died of bad AIDS treatments, and a month, month later my mom died of bad cancer treatments, and so I was uh, in my early 20s when that happened. And so I've always um, kind of you know, been suspicious of what's going on within our Western medical establishment. And then along the way, of course, like all of us, we have, we have friends and families that are damaged by, by um, the pharmaceutical industry. I, I have family members that are addicted. I have a, a nephew who was uh, doing really well in, in the world and hurt his back and was given a prescription by a doctor and the prescription simply said take as needed. So he took it as needed and ended up becoming a drug addict as a result of that one little injury. And so, you know, that's really what has fueled me. And then when I became a father uh, 10 years ago, almost 11 years ago now, I started researching vaccinations and whether or not we were going to have our children vaccinated, and that's when I stumbled upon a lot of the information that is still to this day being hidden from the people. Um, I believe it was April 26 last year. You wrote in a, a Facebook post you were working on this film that was going to blast the light of truth into the darkest corners of our corrupt healthcare system. Did you ever expect? to uncover the depths of the corruption or did you go into this thinking maybe you might in fact find out some of these seemingly outlandish claims weren't true well that's always a possibility and that's that's part of our work is to even question ourselves and whatever whatever our biases are and what we believe to be true is to really double check and triple check to always try to poke holes in our own belief systems you know and that's how we have created a successful situation with these documentaries where they have not been able, even though the media says they're debunked, we've not had one claim that has been proven inaccurate in, in either one of the pandemic um, episodes. Um, but I, you know, kind of tagging on to what I said a moment ago, because I already knew the history of Anthony Fauci, I had was told by uh, a lot of people back when my brother died of AZT, which was the drug that Anthony Fauci was pushing very hard, and it ended up doing grave damage and, and killing a lot of people through the 80s and 90s. Uh, I already knew that Anthony Fauci had a really um, speculative record, to say the least. And so when I saw him reemerge 
for this pandemic. It just shocked me that he was still in the position that he was in. And so the one thing I was certain about was that he, that there was a story to tell about this man, if if nothing else. And that the exploration of of his malfeasance led us down the rabbit hole and then into the world of patents where we found all of the money hiding hiding and all of the paper trail that traced the into the story that is just now being revealed to the world that this was uh, that this virus was produced through gain of function research it was manipulated in a lab how it escaped we don't know but that needs to be investigated in pandemic we meet Dr. Judy Mikovits. Many of us, this is the, our first sort of introduction to Dr. Judy Mikovits, and she's a former chronic fatigue researcher and, of, of course, a, a staunch critic of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Can you just kind of summarize what Dr. Mikovits's main criticism of Dr. Fauci is with regards to AIDS? Well, her criticism is aligned with many doctors very renowned virologists and immunologists around the world who have anyone who's worked under Anthony Fauci and for the NIH in any capacity has a very similar story about him. And that is a story that they say he's a bureaucrat. He works, he works for the politicians. He pushes, he hides effective medicine, safe and effective medicines that can actually end a, a pandemic or any kind of an outbreak and in, in turn pushes patentable medicines that big pharma makes billions of dollars off of. And in doing so, a lot of people suffer as a result of that. And uh, so Judy, Judy Mikovits worked in a laboratory that was overseen by NIH, Anthony Fauci, and she was given an ultimatum at one point. And this is a story that I've heard now dozens of times from different scientists, that they're often asked to do something that is either illegal or immoral and if they do it then they what they find is is that once once the superiors have that dirt on them then they're kind of forced into the system of corruption where they can no longer blow the whistle on things that they see happening and and they're also forced sometimes to go even darker down that into that world of corruption um, with the threat that we'll reveal you if you if you don't go along with us. And so Judy was given an ultimatum to play a dirty game, and she said no, she won't do that. And as a result of that, they dragged her through the mud and and tortured her literally by you know uh, driving her into bankruptcy, putting her in jail for five days threaten her in every way, planting a, a bit of evidence in her in her apartment so that they would have some kind of criminal offense against her to hopefully silence her. And to her credit, because she's a very brave woman, she refused to to be silenced. And she continues to, to this day, and she will to till the, till the, her very last day on this planet, I'm, I'm certain of. She'll continue to speak the truth. Independent filmmaker Mickey Willis is with us. Plandemic was posted on YouTube in May of, of last year and went absolutely viral. Are, are you actually credited with creating the term plandemic? As far as I know, yes. And then it was taken down. Can you just talk briefly about the the efforts by big tech and others to to uh, to bury this film? Well, absolutely, it was unprecedented the level of censorship, and it was really one of the first times that regular citizens had experienced the censorship themselves, because everyone that was sharing it was suddenly reporting back that for the first time ever that they've had their their page suspended or 
or um, they were demonetized from their channel, whatever it might be. And so it was literally unprecedented. We had every every tech, big tech company you can imagine, from GoDaddy shut our URL down, Vimeo took our videos down, Dropbox went into our private password-protected files that you store when you're working on projects. They went in, you know, behind the scenes, deleted everything, and it just went on and on of, of every single platform that was willing to share this and to give the people a, an alternative viewpoint by using this emergency use authorization to suggest to the world that we were, what we were doing was dangerous and killing people, um, they were able to get all these tech platforms to obey. And now we're at a year and a half later, and I was just informed yesterday that they have, uh, oh, um, that they have, in my main, I guess it would be the the uh, Wikipedia page, I believe is what it was, that they had take, taken the word conspiracy theorist off my page. And one of the reasons for that was because it, literally every claim that we put out there back in May of 2020 um, has been proven accurate. And we even put out, out a, a financial challenge to anyone, doctors or anyone that could prove otherwise, and no one no one stepped up to take that. And so now we went from being, you know, the, the dangerous ones to... Uh, the tide has turned so much that we're now receiving a lot of gratitude, and, and it feels good. It just feels good to know that, you know, it's not about us, but just that the people are actually understanding what's what's really going on with the situation, that it's re- not really about our health and protection. What about efforts to uh, censor the, the, the book that's just come out? Well, I hope they take it further, because what the censors, the gatekeepers, have not fully understood is that the more they do that, the more they want the more they make people curious and, and, and they'll look harder for, for this material. And so it, they have tried, they've tried to get the, the book banned. Um, I will say that it's not really a making of the pandemic movies. It goes much further than that. It, it actually was a book that I didn't want written because I didn't have the time and we were very busy fielding all of the stuff that was going on with the media and the smears and everything after pandemic two indoctrination was released. Um, but I, I, I took it on because I was told that there was an investigative journalist who would do most of the writing, and I, I would just have to be available for a couple of interviews. And as it turned out, this investigative journalist had set out to make a hit piece on us, another one. And she had some some notable books that she had written, so I thought that she would, you know, wouldn't do that, but it turns out that that was her intention. But a couple of months into her work, she called my producer, Eric, and said she's at a real impasse that she doesn't know what to do because she's not been able to prove one claim inaccurate in the movie and now she wants to take her name off the movie be off the book that is because she's afraid that she'll get canceled and she's got some big deals coming up and she doesn't want to lose those deals understandably and so she called ended up calling me and and told me she said i i was i was ready to pile on the bad press with you guys she said but i have to say you guys did a fantastic job of research my mind is blown i can't believe what i'm finding here i'm actually kind of terrified by what i'm discovering myself i'm surprised i didn't know this as an investigative journalist and i don't know what to do now and um and so we ended up striking a deal and saying, well, why don't I come in? We can't just have a book written by nobody, so why don't I come in as your co-author and let's take it even deeper. Let's take it all the way. And so we do. Uh, there's a lot of things we didn't do in the movie because I thought people aren't ready to hear it yet, but let's let's go for it in the book. And on top of that, let's make it a as much as we can, let's make it a, a book that allows people to heal and to come back together. Let's write it 
so that it can be shared with people who know that their family members are on the fence and just need to see the data, the, the real verifiable information with statistics and everything, and run away with enough heart that it isn't, uh, it isn't so biased that it, it demonizes one side or turns people off, that it actually creates a, a, a bridge for people to um, accept what's happening right now. And it was written from that point of view, and so far it seems to be that it's been very effective and very proud to say that it went number two on Amazon and it's got five-star reviews so far, and um, I really didn't expect that. And so I'm grateful for the people who have gone out and supported the book. Many of us were watching with you know rapt fascination as U.S. Senator Rand Paul was grilling Dr. Anthony Fauci about the NIH's role in gain-of-function research, and of course, Fauci repeatedly deny, deny, deny. What was going through your mind as you were watching those two go at it? Yeah, great question. A lot was going through my mind because it was actually Dr. David Martin who is the lead speaker in Plandemic 2, Indoctrination, who educated Rand Paul and Ron Johnson with what David Martin has developed that he calls the Fauci dossier. He has, uh, he has information dating back to the mid-'80s. Uh, Anthony Fauci was, uh, he, he was given his position in 1984, ironically, if you understand the, the significance of the, of the date, 1984. Mm. And... David, ha David Martin has been collecting evidence on him since then, and so he, he got together with Rand Paul and Ron Johnson and educated them on that, and that's when they went after Anthony Fauci really hard. And now the world is just now catching up to that. They understood, they understand that he, you know, the NIH just came out a week ago, and, and for the most part threw Anthony Fauci into the bus by saying he lied un under oath in Congress, and yes, we ab absolutely did fund gain-of-function research. And so that's created a whole new world of trouble for Anthony Fauci. And now we have people, we're actually editing, as we speak right now, we're editing a new updated piece on that where, you know, you have people like Dr. Drew and these major doctors coming out saying, I no longer trust Anthony Fauci and he needs to resign. And can we, can we draw a direct link between that gain of function research um, from the Echo Health Alliance in Wuhan to the current pandemic I think there's many paper trails that do just that and I, I can't say much about this but I'll just say that I got a call from a whistleblower that uh, used to be part of the EcoHealth Alliance and I spoke with him last week and there's some so through that connection and several others there's some very direct lines being drawn so it's pretty obvious at this point yet as you said they'll just continue to deny and deny and they'll go off on CNN and MSNBC and they'll just tell everyone that this is all a wild conspiracy theory and it's, it's not it's um, it's it's not, and ironically, it, it I guess it took the discovery of Anthony Fauci's horrific experiments that he's been doing on dogs for people to care. Um, why that matters more than the experiments that are being done on children right now, I don't know why, but uh, honestly, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get that uh, Pandora's box opened. There's that um, oft-repeated saying, you know, never let a good crisis go to, mm -hmm. to waste. Churchill used it. Yeah. Rahm Emanuel used it. Uh, to what extent was this pandemic uh, all about, you know, creating the crisis in order to offer the cure, and the cure was a severe curtailing of civil liberties? Well, you know, that's why we called it pandemic. It's pretty obvious at this point, especially when you see a 
if, if you see Plandemic 2 indoctrination, Plandemic 1 is the one that went was seen by over a billion people. Plandemic 2 has been seen by a couple of hundred million. But that one really offers the, the clarity of how this happened and the preparation leading up to the announcement of the pandemic with a bunch of simulated tabletop exercises to prepare the world and a lot of the people that are profiting from it right now. It was all They were all in the room. It was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it was very clear and even creepy when you watch it to understand what they knew a year before the, the pandemic was announced, what they knew would they be in short supply of, how they knew the media would supply, how they knew the people would, uh, would react. And so it was very clear that they were working out a way to work around all the different obstacles when they, when they came. But yet nobody, even though they knew a year before the pandemic was announced, and they knew everything they'd be in short supply of, that that no one with their you know very deep pockets in that organization and the combined collective organizations took the time to actually go out and manufacture these things that we needed and have them ready for the pandemic that Anthony Fauci said would absolutely without a doubt come within Trump's presidency so they knew it was coming and and I be, and I believe and I think you know at this point millions of people are very clear that this was leveraged for political power to justify the stripping away of our civil liberties which never come back as i always say you know when after 9-11 took place one dummy with explosives in his shoes we 20 years later we still take off our shoes and we go to the airport these things never come back and so the it's a narrowing of our of our freedoms that that is the ultimate goal so that they can have us all under a digital currency under total control so and and under perhaps even a, a, a universal basic income that will allow then the government to say well we don't like what you said online and so you don't eat this month and so until you shape up and and behave the way we want you to you know you you, you better because you're no longer sovereign you don't make your own money we've shut down all the mom-and-pop independent businesses and now you just buy from the big box stores and, and, and be a good citizen, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you what you need to, to get by, to barely get by. That is the ultimate goal, and that's, it. and that's not hyperbole. If you look at the other nations that this has happened to, particularly China and, and many others, uh, then you'll understand that it's, we're, we're literally following a playbook that has been repeated over and over again. But I have very little um, uh, concern that they're going to be able to fully pull it off in America. Ah, okay. I uh, would be very interested in picking up on that point on the other side. Mickey Willis, editor, co-author, Plandemic, Fear is the Virus, Truth is the Cure. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740. Or toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Mickey Willis is with us, independent filmmaker, investigative journalist, and uh, the book is Plandemic, Fear is the Virus, Truth is the Cure. Towards the tail of the, uh, the last segment, you said something very, very important. You don't think they'll get away with this in the United States. Explain. Well, you know, the other nations that have surrendered to this type of agenda were much smaller nations with, with, 
with far less power. America has been the firewall from this agenda happening for a number of decades. This, this has been in play for a hundred years or more. And the people that are behind this, and you know, I, I hesitate to even label them, but I would say that they all can fall under a category known as globalist, and that are, those are the people who, admittedly, out on you know microphone and international television, will say that there's a need for a one-world government, and they've been working towards that for a number of decades by destabilizing other nations, creating wars, and then setting up central banks and creating a state of dependency in other nations on the U.S. dollar, bailing them out with U.S. aid, and then we eventually own that nation. And now the benefit for the the people on this globalist agenda to to control all the other nations is so they they don't have outliers in this like they had in this particular case. They had so many outliers, so many, when you look at Sweden and Hong Kong and and, and different, even within our own nation here, when you look at South Dakota and and different states that just decided that they weren't going to go along with such severe protocols, every one of those places have, not only did they not destroy their economy, but their numbers, their infection rates, their death rates, all of it is far better than the worst examples, that being, say, Israel, New York, Los Angeles, Australia, parts of Canada. All the places that went the most extreme are in the worst shape. And so they don't want to be able to have those outliers. They don't want to be able to have the certain governors or mayors in, in certain cities or, or presidents of certain nations to be able to have the individual sovereignness power to say, no, we're not going to play that game. They have to all be under one control so that they, when they do these global scams that everyone has to participate and we don't have anything to compare it to. But the, the good news is we have a lot to compare this to. We're, all the numbers are coming in right now, and, and even the numbers with the amount of hospitalizations that are happening for people who were fully vaccinated. The hospitals are filled with people who were fully vaccinated right now, and the people who weren't vaccinated, are, they're not very few of them are getting COVID for a second time. They, they got it, they got the antibodies, they built their immune system, and they're doing better. They're in, they're in better shape. And that's just science. That, those are just the real numbers when they're allowed to actually be seen. And so America has always been the firewall because of its power, because of its military power, because because of the experiment that it is in liberty. It has always been the hurdle to stop this agenda from going global in all other nations. And I just, in answer to your question, because of what I'm seeing here, being on the inside and the front line of, of all the different solutions and the people that are waking up, this is going to backfire like nothing else. And we're going to end up with a far more... We'll always have a division, always have people that that will never accept what's really happening here. But for the most part, Americans are waking up at a rapid pace to understand that our government, areas of our government, not all of it, is incredibly corrupt. And this is all about politics. And I believe that what I always say is one of the unintended consequences of the situation is it gave birth to a generation of researchers and citizen journalists. And that in itself is a gift that we can't put a price on. Do you have any insights into why, for example, you mentioned some of these jurisdictions in the United States that never bought into the official narrative? Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, uh, Christy Nome, governor yeah. of South, South Dakota. Were they, were they getting their advice, let's say, from the Barrington Declaration rather than relying on the official science tables? How did they avoid this mess? Well, you know, it's really become a polarized party thing. And I will say this from somebody who I come from the far left. I, I, my political awakening began when I was on the road documenting Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. And then I went on to follow Tulsi Gabbard around 
for her campaign. She's a wonderful person. Bernie, I'm not. I'm no longer a fan of. I understand that he's a Trojan horse for this thing he calls socialism, which is communism in disguise. The reason I brought up the political side of it, just to let people know I come from the left, is that all of the people who are doing that resisted this happen to fall on the right. I find myself to be a political orphan. I'm somewhere in the Libertarian Party now. I would think that that's kind of where I probably end up, if not, you know, really hoping that a new party comes out in the next few years, because I think we have a lot of problems in the Republican Party, too. Yet, when it comes to this particular agenda, the majority of the left-leaning or blue states within my nation have been, these people have been planted there for their ability to be controlled. And in the, the states that were red, and, and a lot of those are the rural areas like South Dakota and beyond and, and you know, Florida, and I'm in Texas. Those are, the, those are the places that maintained enough common sense. And we saw it here in Texas because Texas is, is purple. It's blue and red in particular area of Texas that I'm in. And so we, we got to see it firsthand. We got to see from, from county to county, to city to city, you literally driving through one city was just full lockdown, mass mandates, all of that, and then you drive to the next county, and it's got you know the constitutional sheriffs, and the, it's a it's a red county, and they had none of that, and and their numbers were lower, the people were less scared, they just went on with their lives, and they continued to grow their food and do their thing, and then we have the you know we look over to the left here, and they're doing quite the opposite, and so you could just see the effect. The, the, the leverage that politics has over the behavior of the people. And so in answer to your question, I just it's really a political thing. It is a party thing. And this one happens to fall on the left, mostly. I also want to mention that we just did a partnership with an incredible doctor who was just nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize named Dr. Um, Zelenko. Ah, uh, yes. Vladimir Zelenko, who has created an incredible um, health remedy uh, to, to combat the attack against our immune system is called Z-Stack, and it's on there too, and the, and the formula's on there so people can go, go out and buy it on their own. It's all over-the-counter stuff, but I highly recommend that people take it serious and look at that to um, get, get our immune systems boosted before this dark winter that's coming. Yeah, it's he, all there at pandemicseries.com. And he developed the hydroxychloroquine protocol with, uh, with astromyosin and, and zinc and so forth. Um, which kind Correct. of leads into the next question, and I've had Dr. Peter McCullough on the on the program many, many times. Peter and, will be here in my studio next week. Ah, wonderful. Talking about, uh, and I've asked him, you know, how many lives does he think could have been saved had they fo- had we followed here in the, in the West, for example, the uh, the protocols of Uttar Pradesh in India, two hundred and forty million people. COVID is finished thanks to ivermectin. Any ideas about how many lives could have been saved? had we intervened with either HCQ and zinc or ivermectin? Almost all of them is the best way to put it because, you know, we're looking at an 85 to 99% success rate as a, both as a prophylactic and as treatment during COVID. And every doctor I had in my studio here, Dr. Robert Malone, who created the mRNA technology, he said the same thing. Uh, as I mentioned, Zelenko, uh, he was here in my studio the week before that. He says the same thing. All of these top doctors, Judy Michaelvitz, David Martin, everybody that I'm associated with say the same thing right now. And a lot of them chose to speak out to me, even during this dangerous time when they can lose everything, simply because I reached out to them at one point. Some of them said, it's just too dangerous. I can't, I'll lose everything, and I can't afford that. But after they smeared hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, these doctors got a hold of me, and they said, at this point now, I can say that they're actively killing people because they know. These people know. There's no way that Fauci 
does not know the effectiveness of those two medications that have been around for decades. And so when we see this on the news, it has us know that there's a very, very dark agenda happening, and now we have to speak out. We feel that's our moral obligation to speak out. And it's because of, because of that lie about medicines that these doctors know, and most of them have said that they've been prescribing them for years, and they've had very little side effects, mostly just an upset stomach, which is you know, very common when somebody ingests some kind of a pharmaceutical, um, but that they've seen people... They, they, you know, Vladimir Zelenko told me, literally, he said he's seen people go from incredibly sick to almost 100% recovered within either hours or just a couple of days. And he's seen it over and over and over at this time. You know, at, 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 I guess at one point, a, few, a couple thousand people or so that he's treated. Several thousand people, I think. And so there's just really no denying it at this point. And so you really have to ask yourself a question. Do they really care about our health and our well-being if they're... You know, they're now they're trying to create, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are trying to create their version of ivermectin so that they can patent it. That's the whole problem. This is all about patents. They cannot patent it. it ivermectin is off patent, and it's 30 cents a dose, and they can't make any money off of it. So now they're, they're, they're creating their own version of it that they can patent and then now, you know, charge a lot more for it and make a lot of money off of it. Mickey Willis, the author of... Plandemic. Fear is the virus. Truth is the cure. Back with more in a moment. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Mickey Willis, editor, co-author, Plandemic, Fear is the Virus, Truth is the Cure, independent investigative filmmaker. I also want to mention that we just did a partnership with an incredible doctor who was just nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize named Dr. Um, Zelenko. Ah, yes. Vladimir Zelenko, who has created an incredible um, health remedy uh, to, to combat the attack against our immune system. It's called Z-Stack, and it's on there, too, and the, and the formula's on there so people can go, go out and buy it on their own. It's all over-the-counter stuff, but I highly recommend that people take it serious and look at that to um, get, get our immune systems boosted before this dark winter that's coming. Yeah, and it's he, all there at pandemicseries.com. And he developed the hydroxychloroquine protocol with uh, with astromycin and, and zinc and so forth, um, which kind Correct. of leads into the next question. And I've had Dr. Peter McCullough on the on the program many many times. Peter and, will be here in my studio next week. Ah, wonderful! Talking about uh, and I've asked him, you know, how many lives does he think could have been saved had they fo- had we followed here in in the West, for example, the uh, the protocols of Uttar Pradesh. In India, 240 million people. COVID is finished thanks to ivermectin. Any ideas about how many lives could have been saved had we intervened with either HCQ and zinc or ivermectin? Almost all of them is the best way to put it because, you know, we're looking at an 85 to 99% success rate as a, both as a prophylactic and as treatment during COVID. And Every doctor I had in my studio here, Dr. Robert Malone, who created the mRNA technology, he said the same thing. Uh, as I mentioned, Zelenko, uh, he was here in my studio the week before that. He says the same thing. All of these top doctors, Judy Mikovits, David Martin, everybody that I'm associated with say the same thing right now. And a lot of them chose to speak out to me, even during this dangerous time when they can lose everything, simply because 
I reached out to them at one point. Some of them said, it's just too dangerous. I can't, I'll lose everything, and I can't afford that. But after they smeared hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, these doctors got a hold of me, and they said, at this point now, I can say that they're actively killing people because they know, these people know. There's no way that Fauci does not know the effectiveness of those two medications that have been around for decades. And so when we see this on the news, it has us know that there's a very, very dark agenda happening, and now we have to speak out. We feel that's our moral obligation to speak out. And it's because of, because of that lie about medicines that these doctors know, and most of them have said that they've been prescribing it for years, and they've had very little side effects, mostly just an upset stomach, which is you know, very common when somebody ingests some kind of a pharmaceutical, um, but that they've seen people... They, they, you know, Vladimir Zelenko told me, literally, he said he's seen people go from incredibly sick to almost 100% recovered within either hours or just a couple of days. And he's seen it over and over and over at this time. You know, at, at, I guess at one point, a, few, a couple thousand people or so that he's treated, several thousand people, I think. And so there's just really no denying it at this point. And so you really have to ask yourself a question. Do they really care about our health and our well-being if they're... You know, they're now they're trying to create, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are trying to create their version of ivermectin so that they can patent it. That's the whole problem. This is all about patents. They cannot patent it. it ivermectin is off patent, and it's 30 cents a dose, and they can't make any money off of it. So now they're, they're, they're creating their own version of it that they can patent and then now, you know, charge a lot more for it and make a lot of money off of it. We're seeing all these cracks in the narrative. We just had our chief public medical officer up here in Ontario kind of let it slip for the first time, really. I mean, he, I don't know if he realized he actually he said it out loud that a prior infection confers immunity. And yet that that's there's no exemption for a prior infection. We have a travel ban going into effect here in Canada the end of November. You won't be able to get on a plane or a train or a marine vessel and travel within your own country or abroad unless you're fully vaccinated. Canadians will be prisoners, unvaccinated Canadians, prisoners in their own country. Again, we see these cracks. He let it slip. What is is it going to take for this dam to finally burst? We see all the cracks. Yeah, well, it's it's bursting. It's bursting in slow motion. I, I I would tell people if you really want to have clear evidence, study the Amish. The Amish have their own way of doing things. And one story that we're researching right now was that uh, from one Amish community, they had, as soon as COVID, the first person had COVID within their community, they had a party where everybody drank out of the same wine glass until they all contracted COVID. And they all got sick and they were all in bed for a few days. And then they all recovered naturally with you know organic remedies. And now they're totally immune to it. They have the full antibodies, and instead, what we've done is we have suppressed our immune systems. We were told to stay inside, out of the sunlight, out of the vitamin D. We were told not to exercise, and we were told to disinfect our homes, meaning that we were weakening our immune systems by creating a sterile environment. This is why when people go into ICU for several months, they just can't be integrated back into society because they'll get sick and they'll die because their immune systems shut down in a sterile environment. So we literally created an ICU environment in our homes by spraying our countertops, you know, not to mention the fact that a lot of these sprays were toxic in themselves and no, you know there was there were no health experts to come out to say be careful with this brand or, or these chemicals or this formula use only this these are the healthiest ones no they didn't want that they wanted us to use the unhealthy stuff so now we have all these people with immunocompromised systems 
that are now, and, and this is why we have what they're calling the super cold. You know, the UK is experiencing the super cold right now, and it's spreading here. So we're, what is a super cold, really? Well, it's the cold, but it's super because our immune systems are so not super, right? Never had in their lives. And this is all because of the degradation of our natural immune systems. So we're playing with nature, where it's a war against nature. And this is really what Big Pharma is up to, because at the end of the day, it's a win-win for them. Because if we destroy our natural immune systems, then we're literally dependent upon them to survive our toxic environment. That's, that's, that's ultimately, at the end of the day, what's going to happen to a lot of people who are taking thir- three and four booster shots. Uh, Mickey, you point out in the book, pan- Plandemic, Fear is the Virus, Truth is Secure, that uh, there have been over 500 new billionaires in a single year created because of the, uh, of the pandemic. Just final question, and we just have a short, like a minute here. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. foresee a reckoning happening do you foresee for example uh, a nuremberg 2 type trial i i think you know something perhaps it you know i don't know that it'll be a to that degree but when you see there's a video going around right now of bill gates trying to um drive through some part of london and and people are shouting at his car you murderer we know who you are we know what you did and so the people are waking up to this, and I think that we're going to see some form of justice. I don't know what that would look like, Richard, but I do believe that we're very close to seeing a resignation, which then will lead towards some type of charges against Anthony Fauci. I believe that'll be the beginning of it. And then that may then spill on into really investigating Bill Gates, which has to be done, because I know the history of that man, and if anyone still thinks he's a good-hearted philanthropist, boy, <laughs> i got a bridge to sell you. I know that you're not about I told you so and you would take very little solace in being vindicated by all of this but you have been and uh, I, I think you're doing the Lord's work Mickey thank you so much thank you so much for your openness and your support and God bless you sir thank you Mickey Willis the truth is not out there it's right here The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You thought we'd seen the last of Hillary Clinton? Wayne Allen Root, host of the nationally syndicated Wayne Allen Root Raw and Unfiltered on the USA Radio Network, is predicting the Dems are going to try and install Hillary as president. Wayne Allen Root, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Richard. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And and, uh, certainly... I'm very famous for one thing, writing provocative articles with provocative headlines, and this one got me a lot of coverage in the media all over the United States, but I don't write it to get attention. I write it because that's what I believe in, but certainly the idea that Hillary could wind up as president again without being elected, by the way, without anybody voting for her, is very provocative and has caught everyone's attention, and it made the headlines all over the United States and, uh, and resulted in a lot of people talking, and I, that's what I do, by the way. A, I want to be right, I want to be accurate, but B, I want to start a conversation, I want people to be talking and debating the issues, and that's what I'm good at, and it certainly worked uh, exceedingly well this time. Well, it is provocative, but it also makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at the poll right now. I can't remember the last time the President of the United States was in the low 30s in the approval rate. The Vice President, probably 10 points lower than that. You have combined the two most unpopular politicians in America right now, practically. They desperately need a life preserver. 
Yes, and I want to I want to mention that you know, being that this interview is in Toronto, Canada, perhaps people in uh, up north, our northern neighbors, don't understand how bad the polls are in America. They're very slanted. All these polls that show Biden in the 30s of popularity and Kamala Harris as vice president in the 20s are actually known for oversampling Democrats. I call them rigged polls. Uh, you know, they're they're fraudulent polls. They make sure they poll many more Democrats than there are percentage-wise Democrat voters in the actual election. Let's say that in any given election, 50% of the voters are Democrat and 48 are Republican. Well, that's how you should poll. But instead, the pollsters poll 60% Democrats and 40% Republicans, which is not in any way representative of what the real vote is. And then they come out always with much higher ratings for Democrats than Republicans. They were famous for doing that for four years under President Trump. They always made his ratings look much lower than they really were because they oversampled Democrats. And of course... If you poll more liberals, as we say in America, I'm not sure if in Canada that term applies, but if you poll more leftists, you're going to get a leftist answer. And they're going to say, oh, we hate Trump. But you're not polling the right percentage of people. So my point is, these are the same polls that underrepresented Trump, and now they're still oversampling Democrats, and they show Biden in the 30s and Kamala in the 20s. You know what that means? The real numbers, if these were professional polls, would be Biden would probably be in the low 30s or even the 20s, and Kamala is probably in the teens. So you're even underestimating how unpopular they are based on on pollsters that I think are always rigging their polls to help Democrats a little bit. So it's, it's quite amazing how unpopular the whole country has turned against Biden and Kamala Harris. So Democrats know that Trump's going to run again. He's made that clear even on my show. He came on three weeks ago and said, Absolutely, you're going to be thrilled when you hear what I'm planning to do for 2024. But I can't say the word, yes, I'm running, because that would put me in campaign finance laws, and that might get me in some sort of trouble, or that might cause me to you know, have to you know, absolutely do certain things that meet the rules and regulations of the FCC, uh, FEC, Federal Elections Commission. So I can't say yes. I'll just say you're going to be thrilled when you find out what I'm going to do in 2024. So Trump is absolutely running again, and most polls show if the election were held today and they got a revote. A uh, tremendous amount of people that voted for Biden would switch over to Trump and he'd win by a landslide. They show 13 to 15 point landslide. So certainly Democrats know all this and they're plotting, in my opinion, and planning and coordinating ways to replace both Biden and Kamala Harris. And that was what my article was all about. And by the way, Richard, I don't know if it's going to be Hillary Clinton. I just know she's been in the media a lot lately. She disappeared for two years, and now she suddenly popped up day and night again. I think she's planning to be the one they use to replace Biden. But I know one thing for sure. My prediction isn't that Hillary will be the next president. My prediction is they're going to replace Biden before 2024, if he even lasts that long, because it's clear he's got dementia and he's getting worse right. every day. Right. So it's, it's a bad situation and they will replace him. That I will predict. Well, it's interesting because uh, in terms of the vice president, there are rumblings that the House of Representatives is gearing up for confirmation hearings. And the only thing that the House confirms is the vice president. Yeah, and, and uh, it's funny because 
the few criticisms I got for this article, you know, I love to read the comments under the commentaries that I write, right? I like to hear what people are saying, and I love it when everybody agrees with me. And, but when half do or half don't or 20% don't, that's okay. I want to hear what they say so I can come up with an answer. And so quite a few people said, well, I love Wayne Root, and his predictions are usually right, but on this one he's way off because you can't <clears> – <throat> Uh, appoint a vice president, it's automatically the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who would move up to vice president according to the U.S. Constitution. And I could tell you right now, Richard, that's not true. They've got the story wrong. As a matter of fact, the proof is in 1976, when when, uh, Spiro Agnew Mm -hmm. had to strap down as vice president, Richard Nixon didn't name the Speaker of the House. He named the minority leader of the House, Gerald Ford. You can name anyone you want as long as the House backs it and votes for it. You've got that person. And then when when Nixon resigned, Ford became president, and he named Nelson Rockefeller the vice president. Well, he wasn't Speaker of the House. He was the former governor of New York, but he was never even in the House. He was never a congressman in his life. You can name anyone you want. I think the Speaker of the House thing, what people get confused of, that's a succession thing. In other words, if the president and vice president get killed in in a bombing, you automatically have the Speaker of the House moves on up. But if somebody resigns, the president could pick whoever he wants, and that person gets ratified or not by the House. Well, the House is Democrat right now, so if they named someone right now, that person would be ratified by the Congress. If Biden gets rid of Kamala Harris, how do you see him being pushed aside? Would the new vice president, whether it's Hillary or someone else, invoke the 25th Amendment? Will he be pressured or decide on his own that it's time for him to step aside? How do you see this playing out? Yeah, who, who knows, Richard? I mean, we don't know what will happen. I don't know. I, have a, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do have a pretty good gut instinct that's been right an enormous, uncanny amount of times in my six years on national radio and TV. I've made a lot of predictions, and most of them have come true. But some have been wrong, right? I mean, nobody's perfect. I'm, I'm batting about 990, I think, which is pretty good. In the major leagues, oh, yeah. if you bat 300, you, you make the Hall of Fame. I'm batting like 990. I think I've been wrong about 10 times making like 1,000 predictions. So I'm not bad. But I don't know what's going to cause Biden to step down. Either it'll be the 25th Amendment, they'll force him to step down, or he'll just voluntarily do it because, uh, you know, he's obviously lost. Anybody can see he's lost. So, you know, his wife may convince him and his closest aides may convince him you just can't run in 2024. Your poll ratings are too low and you are having mental uh, cognitive problems. And that's a perfect excuse to step down and you'll be a hero. They'll say what a brave, wonderful, courageous man you are. You gave up the presidency for the good of the country. So who knows? Do they force him to do it or does he do it voluntarily? What about the timing? It has to happen before the midterms. And if they're going to have any hope of averting this red tsunami in the midterms. You think, you think, but I, you know, I'm not there. I'm not in the middle of their meetings. I make predictions for a living. And my prediction was they're going to have to do something before 2024 and maybe before 2022. It looks like they're going to get destroyed in the midterms. But, you know, I, I feel, you know, as many Americans do, as most Trump voters do, I feel that they stole the 2020 election. I believe Trump won. It was clear he won. And and the five battleground states that stopped the count at midnight on election night, the most absurd thing that's never happened in the history of America before, and they all conspired with each other to stop the count. And in the morning, they suddenly found hundreds of thousands of votes for Biden and zero for Trump. And he, and he literally lost five battleground states by, by like a thousand votes in each determined the difference in the entire United States presidential election. 
So I believe it was stolen. So if you believe it was stolen, how do you know that 2022 won't be stolen or 2024 won't be stolen? I don't trust the process anymore, and I don't know one Trump or Republican voter who trusts the process. We believe there's massive voter fraud in the American election system, mostly relating to two things, two simple things. You don't have to get into anything complicated or machines changing votes or anything like that. Number one, we're the only major country in the world that doesn't have voter ID. And because of COVID, we have mail-in balloting, which means you don't even show up at the poll. You just send it in. Nobody can prove who you are. There's no signature matching, no signature verification. So the whole thing is one big corrupt fraud, in my opinion. So do I believe that we should win by a landslide in 2022 and take over both the House and the Senate by a mile? Yes, I think it should be an historic biggest landslide in the history of America because everyone hates Biden at this point. But will it happen? Well, not if you allow millions of mail-in votes with no voter ID and they bombard the system with fraudulent voting. Maybe it'll be a lot less than it could have been. So, you know, maybe it's going to be that bad, Richard, and maybe they're going to make sure through voter fraud it's not really that bad. And that's what worries me. Wayne Allen Root, host of the nationally syndicated Wayne Allen Root Raw and Unfiltered on the USA Radio Network and author of The Great Patriot Protest and Boycott Book. Wayne, appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. God bless. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for Hour 2, writer-researcher Mary Joyce on ancient civilizations in Antarctica. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Mary Joyce has worked for two major metropolitan newspapers, the Orlando Sentinel in Florida as an artist and columnist, and the Oakland Press in Michigan, and the Oakland Press in Michigan as a Sunday magazine editor and then the feature editor. Mary's gone from investigating mob stories in Detroit, including Jimmy Hoffa's death, to interviewing people with the highest top secret clearances about clandestine government activities. She even had a face-to-face interview with a whistleblower with Cosmic Top Secret Clearance, who once worked within the top tier of the infamous international cabal. She's the author of Underground Military Bases Hidden in North Carolina Mountains, Cherokee Little People Were Real, Tangible Evidence of Jesus Left Behind for Us, and Bigfoot Beyond the Footprints 
And she is the founder of an absolutely fabulous website called skyshipsovercashiers.com. Hey, Mary, welcome. How are you? I'm doing real well. And as usual, I like to share with you the most recent uh, information that I've discovered and one that I'm currently kind of excited about. And since September, we have discovered three ancient cities emerging from the ice in Antarctica. And to give your listeners an idea of what this, these images look like, they're all perpendicular lines. They are uh, uh, box squares that look like the walls for uh, multiple buildings like you might see in New York. Uh, not as clear, but clearly they are uh, not man, uh, they are man-made, not uh, something that nature did. And, and, uh, and you discovered these using Google Earth. Yes, and I would encourage people to uh, use that a lot. We found things that we weren't supposed to see under the ocean and on Mars and now in Antarctica, and uh, it's quite a useful tool. So uh, talk to me about the this young disabled woman. I believe she suffered a series of strokes and is was left bedridden, so she has a lot of time now and has taken up this task of using Google Earth to find unusual, perhaps ancient formations under the ocean and now in the Antarctic. I'm so glad you mentioned her. Her name is Mary Hall. She lives in Michigan. Uh, she got a stroke as a very young person. She was under 50 and um, for a stroke that's young. And uh, she's now uh, homebound, but she's not bedridden. And she doesn't waste her time. She uses uh, she monitors the uh, International Space Center. Uh, she uh, monitors Google. She searches for these things. And back in May, she decided she was going to see if she could find any remnants of an ancient civilization on Antarctica. So she started in May, and she found one um, in September, September 18th. And it's really quite an interesting uh, place because... Not only does it have these uh, geometric shapes, but the whole uh, metropolitan area is um, like organic. It's like it's, de- it's developed along a river, perhaps. Um, and uh, that's what really got us started. And when she found that, it inspired me to start really taking more time to look for things myself. And I found one uh, that I call a walled city. And um, there's this wall that's uh, 574 feet long, and right next to it, abutting to it, and below it, are all these uh, box shapes that indicate, um, I'll say, man-made structures. Um, when you back off from that and get a, a bigger view of it, that um, that wall, which may be a bridge, which may be a road, I, I, I cannot tell for sure, it's broken and it picks up again. And when it picks up again, it's uh, over 1,600 feet in length. And for those who aren't familiar with Google Earth, there is a tool where you can actually measure things. And you can measure them in feet or inches or miles or kilometers. And uh, so it's been very helpful in discovering these things. And what is most remarkable, perhaps, of all, as you point out in the uh, the article at skyshipsovercashiers.com, is if these ancient cities, ancient civilizations are emerging from the ice, how old would they have to be? They have to be the oldest things that we've ever discovered. Uh, Most scientists agree that um, 
the ice has been in Antarctica for about 34 million years. That's an awful long time. And so the ice is melting fast now, and uh, these things are emerging, and they have to be at least that old. And they've been in a deep freeze for millions of years. We don't have anything close to that age on any other continent in, in the world. Uh, the oldest one I'm familiar with is in uh, Africa, and it's kind of a primitive structure. It goes back uh, 100,000 years, which is just a blink of the eye compared to what we're finding in Antarctica. Um, it's actually the, the things in Antarctica are 340 times older than the oldest things we know about in South Africa. What about these legendary bases that the Nazis built down there on the Antarctic? Is it possible that, that we're looking at those? Uh, no, uh, everything that I have learned about that is those structures are very deep within Antarctica. Um, and these are just below the ice. So I don't think we're seeing the same thing. And um, from what I understand, the Nazi, Nazi structures um, really started out by expanding on um, like volcanic tubes and volcanic um, caves uh, way beneath the ground. So, no, I don't think they're the same thing. This um, young woman that first discovered these images on Google Earth back in May, uh, she was looking in a very unusual place, some, some, a place that most people wouldn't think about. Tell me about that. I would have skipped right over that. Um, there, in fact, I have a picture with the story on the website, and it's just a picture of the ice. And you can see these real fine, um, like black sliver-like cracks in the ice. Well, she actually took the time to zero in and go into those cracks, and that's where she found the first ruins. Um, I confess I never would have been that diligent to have uh, um, to have to have found the original ones because uh, it would take so much dedication and patience and time. You were uh, you're always careful to mark down the exact coordinates when you're looking for something on Google Earth. And in this case, I believe you marked it 79 degrees, 13 minutes, 50 seconds south, 155 degrees, 51 minutes, 30 seconds east. And you do that because you want to go back and check it at some point. What happened when you went back to that exact same coordinate the next time? Well, there's two reasons I do it. One is for my own reference so I can go back and find the things again. But I also want people out there in the world to be able to check these things out for themselves because there's so much happening on the Internet where people do Photoshop and they seem to get a kick out of, you know, creating things that aren't real. So when you can check them out yourself, then it becomes more believable. Now, the thing that really, um, I guess, upset me uh, happened uh, on the 28th of this month, just a couple of days ago. And I went back after writing an article about this find, and my goodness, it had been totally distorted. Uh, in, uh, initially, I could see the parallel lines and the perpendicular lines and the box shapes. And just an hour later, when I went back, um, it, it doesn't look like that at all. Um, so somebody doesn't want us to know what's going on down there and why they want to hide, hide ancient history is a bit of a puzzlement to me. And of course, we can't be certain about who the they is, but they have been very active. 
Right. You, you posted the after picture when you went back to look at it again. And as you say, it's very pixelated, very blurry. You really can't tell uh, that you're looking at some sort of an, uh, an ancient metropolis. Uh, who, who do you think built these things? Are we talking about an ancient alien civilization or uh, perhaps along the lines of, you know, Michael Cremo, who's written about um, ancient advanced technological civilizations that have existed on earth for millions and millions of years. I lean toward the idea that they're uh, more like us than like aliens. Um, that's just my own um, feel about this story. Um, the reptilian stories all seem to be coming from deep within the ground. These were clearly surface structures uh, at one time that were covered up. The Nazi things, the reptilian things were deep beneath that uh, from the beginning. So they weren't surface structures. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll uh, continue to search uh, Google Earth for uh, for more uh, evidence of ancient civilizations down in the Antarctic. Now, let's shift gears. Here's another mind-blowing story available at skyshipsovercashiers.com. And that is... Uh, Albert Einstein's assistant, Dr. Shirley Wright. Uh, this was uh, an interview that was released, uh, I guess, earlier this month, a taped interview with Dr. Shirley Wright, who accompanied Dr. Albert Einstein, her boss, at a Roswell investigation in 1947. Tell me about it. Well, to be very honest with you, um, I'm not that much interested in posting Roswell stories because it seems like we have heard it from so many people so many ways. But this is different. And, um, you know, Dr. Shirley Wright was, was a very bright woman, and she didn't release her story until 74 years after um, she was there. And she not only saw the ship, she saw the ETs. She told us some of the things we've heard from other people. There were nine bodies. But what sticks out in my mind is that she was able to see an interchange between the scientists and the government people and whoever else was there, an interchange between them and the ETs. So there was a actually a like a Q&A back and forth between the two. I had never heard that before. And it's probably... Uh, anybody who's interested in this subject would probably find it very interesting to listen to the tape. Um, it's actually, I think, it, let me start over again. The, it looks like it was recorded on those old um, cassette tapes because one's about eight minutes long, one's about 10 minutes long or something close to that. Um, it's worth listening to. And uh, she had top security clearance to even be there. Um, a uh, couple things that stand out in my mind is that um, those ETs um, were having trouble with their home base or home planet and were out um, exploring the universe, trying to find a place where they might uh, relocate. So that was the purpose of their trip. Um, they were very advanced, um, uh, apparently a little bit condescending about how ignorant humans were. Uh, they did ask uh, how far we'd gone out into space. They asked how deep we'd gone into the ocean. Um, they asked what kind of diseases uh, caused our demise. Uh, so they were curious about us. And, of course, our scientists were curious about them. Um, 
the ETs may have learned more than our scientists did because uh, they just, the ETs felt that we were just, you know, kind of dumb, I guess. Right. And um, why was Einstein asked to, to go to Roswell? Um, he was the one of the most notable and still is one of the most notable scientists at that time. And they brought him in because they wanted to uh, learn as much as possible. And he would have the background to understand so much more than the military people or, you know, the, the other scientists that might be there. That's the reason he was called in. And uh, according to um, Dr. Shirley Wright, Einstein seemed, uh, I don't know, what's the word, nonplussed about this. He wasn't like shocked or amazed. He, he seemed to take it in stride. Um, I think people who have uh, creative minds and are very intelligent have probably already in their own thoughts contemplated these possibilities. So I don't think it was hitting him like something he had never thought about before. Now, that's my opinion. That's not based on anything that she said. Right. Uh, and incidentally, people can hear that interview with Dr. Shirley Wright, which was recorded by researcher Sheila Franklin. Uh, and that's at ufoexplorations.com, ufoexplorations.com. Uh, did Albert Einstein, your, you, sorry, go ahead. I'm glad you said that because I think it's important to listen to the tape. And uh, I have a link with the story that we have posted. It's called Einstein's assistant saw and heard Roswell's Roswell ETs. Um, the person who found it and made it public was uh, a UFO researcher named Anthony uh, Bergalia. And that tape is actually on his site. And anytime somebody does some really great research that I think other people ought to know. I am the first one who will put it on our website. I'm not trying to be the know-it-all about everything. And he found, you know, quite a little treasure when he got those tapes. The recordings were actually made back in 1993, um, but they only became available this year in October. To your knowledge, did Einstein ever talk about this publicly or even privately? Oh, I know that a number of years ago we did a story, and I'm not going to be able to bring back too much of the top of my head, but he had addressed these uh, topics along with uh, one of the uh, Nazi scientists. Uh, so, yes, he had contemplated these things and explored some of these things before. But did he actually mention participating in this investigation at Roswell? No. This is the first time that I have been aware of this in any way whatsoever. All right. Here's another shocking story. Mary, tell us about the United States and their plan to detonate a nuclear device on the moon. Well, let me tell you what really sparked it all. Um, back in 1957, the Russians launched the very first satellite called Sputnik, um, uh, you know, and it was successful. The United States became absolutely upset because we were suddenly in second position. And I'm old enough to remember the impact on the uh, world at that time or on our country at that time. Suddenly we had new uh, programs in education for advanced math. We had, um, I mean, just everybody was getting crazy that we weren't the top dog anymore. So according to um, a man named Alex Wellerstein, and he's a respected um, historian about nuclear science and technology, 
the military came up with a plan to drop a bomb on the moon. Uh, the intent was to show Russia that we still were very powerful and, uh, you know, not really second place. I think it's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. And, um, uh, you know, it's this is another piece of information that just came out this year. This man's book, again, it's Alex Wellerstein, came out um, this year. And so before that, I don't think anybody was really aware uh, that this had even been a plan. Uh, as I did more research into this, I found out that the man who um, was in charge of maintaining all the nuclear weapon uh, weaponry or the inventory for all the nuclear weapons in the U.S., um, you know, said before he died that um, there had been a plan uh, for scientific purposes uh, to um, use an atomic weapon on the moon. And the plan, he said, was stopped by extraterrestrials. And this man was an uh, Air Force colonel, and uh, he worked directly with the U.S. Uh, Atomic Energy Commission. So those are two credible sources that uh, indicate that uh, our military once entertained what I think is a terrible idea. U.S. Air Force Colonel Ross Dedrickson. And um, you mentioned the book by Alex Wellerstein, that's Restricted Data, the History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States. So did he provide any other details about this plan to detonate a nuclear device on the moon that was stopped by extraterrestrials? Any further details on how it was stopped? Was it a, a UFO that that turned the nuclear device off or was there a, a face-to-face meeting? What Do we know anything more? Uh, the only thing else I know is that the plan uh, to uh, do an experiment with uh, an atomic weapon actually had a name. It was, it was Project A-119. And the only thing I know is that when before he died, he said that plan was halted by extraterrestrials. If he elaborated on it, I have not been able to find that. All right. I'm wondering if they had been successful and detonated this nuclear device on the moon, whether that might have altered the distance between the Earth and the moon, whether it could have caused some catastrophic situation back here on Earth. Has anyone commented on that? Not in, re- not in relationship to this story, but I do know that the moon seems to be perfectly positioned to keep a balance on Earth. And if it was in a different position, we would be in trouble. Um, our weather systems, um, everything depend on the moon. Uh, I'm one of those who feels pretty strongly that the moon is um, a hollow um, spaceship or ETs from somewhere. And there's been two times that... Um, the astronauts have dropped pieces of equipment on the moon and have caused it to ring, um, which would indicate it's hollow. And some of this vibration lasted for hours on, on at least one of those two. And when you have an earthquake on Earth, it doesn't last but just a minute or so because the Earth is dense. But with the moon being hollow, that vibration would continue on for hours. Um, So if the ETs indeed are using that as a uh, command base, 
Well, you better believe they didn't want anybody dropping a nuclear bomb on their uh, spaceship, which we call the moon. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. Well, the hits just keep on coming, Mary. Story after story here, mind-blowing story after story at skyshipsovercashiers.com. Uh, tell me about Sergeant Major Robert O'Dean, who broke his cosmic top-secret clearance oath. Um, back in 2010, I spoke at the International UFO Congress in, in Nevada. And he was there. And I want you to know that he was so highly respected that during that entire week, I never saw him without a retinue of people following him around and hanging on every word he said. Um, He um, had cosmic top secret clearance with NATO. That's the highest clearance um, that's available. And he worked for uh, the Supreme Headquarters, Allied Powers Europe, which they call SHAPE, S-H-A-P-E, um, for, from 63 to 67. And he was assigned to the war room. Uh, he was an intelligence uh, analyst. And he said that his life was changed because they showed him a report that was done in 1961 um, about ETs and about ETs being uh, here on Earth and, and involved uh, with our planet. And he said his life was never the same after that. In the article that I have, uh, which is called Man with Cosmic Top Secret Clearance Says ETs on Earth, um, uh, which, by the way, is at the, it's the very last thing on the homepage on the right-hand side. Uh, when we post things, we have the most recent 20 stories on the right-hand side. And everything we've talked about so far is in that column, so it's easy to find. Um, He broke his cosmic secret um, clearance a number of times because he felt very, very strongly that uh, the public had a right to know that uh, there were ETs and the ETs were involved in our world. Um, He said that we are going to, you know, be exposed to them directly and that our population wasn't prepared for that. And he felt it was his responsibility to let people know I have a link with that story to a a seven-minute video in which you hear him speak for himself, and um, I think it's worth listening to. It's also, there's kind of a positive uh, message there. He's very positive about mankind's future. Which is nice to hear these days, because sometimes it seems like everything's bad. Um, uh, He said that if they were going to get rid of us or do us harm, it would have happened a long time ago. Uh, He feels like they have been involved with our evolution as human beings. Uh, He also said we can't categorize them. He said there are those that look human, that look just like us, and if they sat down next to us, uh, we would not notice the difference. Uh, He said that these ETs uh, have various degrees of um, capabilities. He said some are interplanetary, some are interstellar, some are intergalactic, and some are multidimensional. So, um, uh, it, it, you know, I think it's time that everybody listen to this seven-minute video because I think we all need a boost. We keep hearing all the creepy um, uh, creepy things and all the things that uh, make the world seem scary. 
Uh, Mary, you wrote Cherokee little people were real. Uh, we've talked about that in the past, but you have an update at Sky Ships over cashiers about uh, Cherokee little people still living today. What's going on? Yeah, when I wrote that book, which is a number of years ago now, I was uh, thinking in the past, I had met all these uh, uh, elderly men who had worked on construction at Western Carolina University, and they found all this evidence of uh, the little people. They found little tunnels, little skeletons. And so I wrote the whole book in the past tense. Well, when people found out, especially the Native Americans, found out that I wasn't laughing at this idea uh, that there might be Cherokee little people, I began to be contacted by people who are today still having contact with the little people. Not in large numbers, but still they're seeing them. Um, one of the stories that um, I found incredibly interesting, uh, I learned from a, a very, very shy Cherokee girl here in North Carolina. She would never have talked to me except a friend of mine was a friend of hers, and because of that connection, she was willing to trust me. So you get these magical uh, connections that happen, and sometimes the best stories happen that way. Anyhow, uh, one of her stories was really cute. And what she said when she was a child, uh, her family had a place up in the remote section of the Cherokee Reservation here in North Carolina. And they would go there for family meetings or family picnics or outings. And they kept a small trailer up there for the bathroom and also to do some cooking. Well, she was one of the kids running around playing hide and seek. And she decided she'd go hide in the shower of the little trailer. And when she pulled back the shower curtain, there was this little man, which she described as looking like um, Moji from the uh, um, the movie, uh, the little character um, with the straight cut dark hair. Right. And she said he smiled real big at her and it scared her to death and she went running to her daddy. But she said she'd never forgotten that. And she wasn't the only one in her family who had had experiences. Um, her mother grew up in a, uh, the area called Big Crow Cove, and uh, uh, she said that she and her cousins would play around in that area in the mountains, and once they saw six little people in a circle, and she said in all her life, she only saw one girl. Uh, the rest had just been boys when they would be out uh, playing in the woods and seeing these little creatures. Um, her grandmother apparently had seen it, and then she went to... Um, Snowbird, North Carolina, which is even a more remote part of, um, of Western North Carolina. And her uncle wanted to prove to her about the little people. And so he uh, spread out flour on the floor. And the next morning when they got up, there were these little footprints uh, that could be seen in the flour. So those were some stories that just came out from one person. Uh, I think you're most and recent. More. Oh, uh, yeah, please br oh. keep bringing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then I was contacted again. When they find out, when the Indians find out that you're not going to laugh at them, they will open up with you. And another man, um, again, Cherokee, contacted me. And he had uh, at one time been hunting, bear hunting with another friend uh, near a place called Chimney Rock. And Chimney Rock is a state park here in Western North Carolina. And Suddenly, there was this really, really bad storm, and they found a small cave and um, crawled into it to spend the night so they wouldn't be uh, drenched. 
And he said, and I, let's see, I can probably quote him on this. During the night, my friend Kenny woke me and told me not to say a word because there were little people outside the cave. We lay there quietly in the dark listening. They spoke in old Cherokee. Today's Cherokee speaks slang. So Kenny and I uh, could not understand what they said, only a word or two. Uh, the little people were there all night. The next morning, outside the cave, there were little footprints about the size of a five- or six-year-old child. Remarkable, remarkable. Um, is is I, this... I can give you another one if you're interested. Yeah, please keep them coming. These are amazing. Okay. Um, I, I live here in the mountains, and about um, one or two ridges away from where I live, uh, there's a couple that I'm friends with, and they have a webcam outside their... Um, entranceway to where they live. They live at the top of the ridge. Uh, it's a one-way road to get up there. Um, and if it hadn't been for, I think, a blackbird or something going in front of this um, cam, uh, you know, camera, um, they never would have caught it. But they caught this little figure in the woods. And they debated a while before they decided to bring the subject up with me because one of them thought it was just a spirit. Another one thought it might actually be a real little person. And what they finally did was to let me see what they had found. And I took that on the computer and I increased the intensity of the, um, the color. Anything that is alive goes to a magenta color. Anything that is not alive, which would be a spirit or a ghost, stays white. So what I did in one of the postings was I had those images, and then I found uh, pictures of ghosts um, that are supposedly authentic, and I did the same thing. I turned up the intensity of the color. The ghost in the pictures stayed white. In one of the pictures, the ghost is crawling on the floor playing with a small child who was alive. The child turned magenta. The, little, the ghost stayed white. So this little... Uh, creature in the woods, a little person in the woods, um, turned magenta, so it clearly was not a spirit. Um, this was captured by the camera in August when it was really pretty warm. Um, the little person is either nude or very close to it. You see the back side of it. It has the long um, black straight cut hair like the uh, emoji from the movies. And um, the couple were really curious. So the man went out to where they had seen the little person and he measured the height of it. And then he kept crouching down by the markings on the tree. And he figured that the little person was about three, three and a half feet tall. That is the height that I consistently have heard in all of my research. So they, after a bunch of years, we finally may have a very blurry, but perhaps believable photo of a little person. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back, writer-researcher and the founder of SkyShipsOverCashiers.com, Mary Joyce, is here. 
Bigfoot, your latest book, Beyond the uh, Footprints. And you, I know you've been doing some media. You were on with my good friend, uh, Jim Harold recently talking about uh, Bigfoot and uh, some other programs. Any updates on your Bigfoot research? It isn't my research, but I will be posting something uh, next week um, by the end of the week. And it's one of the few videos that looks like it might be authentic of uh, a Bigfoot in the woods. It was taken by a couple on Vancouver Island. So maybe by the end of this coming Friday, uh, it'll be posted. It will be at the top of the uh, page on the homepage. So um, anybody will be able to find it. That's the most recent thing. Um, other than that, um, it, you know, I have a lot of stories in um, the book that I've done. And uh, it shows the human side of the Bigfoot. I got tired of hearing just about Bigfoot footprints and, you know, the, sto the scary stories about them always being violent. What I have found from my research is that they don't become violent, except with those who are aiming guns at them or shooting at them. Um, the two stories I include in the book that are of that nature, you know, involve that kind of situation. So um, these, these Bigfoot, they have family. They, um, um, I don't know, it's, it, they, they have more human qualities than people might think. And genetically, I call them our, cousin, uh, our cousins because they've analyzed the DNA. And I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Dr. Melba Ketchum. Uh, yes. She started all this. And she was made fun of when she first came up with her research that the Bigfoot have some human DNA. Since then, other researchers have confirmed what she found. And the mother side of the gene uh, pool is human. The paternal side is some unknown primate. They don't even have a record of what it might be. Um, another thing that I found out that was kind of interesting is that um, the Bigfoot don't all look the same. They can be different sizes. Uh, the smallest ones seem to be like in Florida, where they're called swamp apes. Uh, we seem to have the medium-sized ones. And out, out west in the Rockies is where you seem to get the, the largest Bigfoot. But they can vary in color. Uh, one gal who has uh, had so much contact with um, Bigfoot all of her life that she was invited to go to uh, Russia um, by the head of the Hominology uh, Institute uh, because of her knowledge. And she said that uh, the skin color can be everything from black, tan, to white, to gray, uh, that the eye color isn't always the same. Um, the personalities uh, can vary just like they do with us. So there's a lot of um, variation that I don't think most people are aware of. Bigfoot, Beyond the Footprints. Uh, Mary, you're so busy maintaining this amazing website, doing research. What are you working on right now? Um, believe it or not, I'm going to continue do, doing this research on the um, Antarctica finds because I think that's mind-boggling history. Uh, if we're finding things from 34 million years ago, and um, hopefully this will be the good uh, result of, um, I don't know, climate change. Everything else about climate change seems to be negative, but this is good because glaciers and ice are melting everywhere in the world at a very fast rate. And to such an extent that we even have a new category of archaeology, it's called glacial archaeology. And that was started um, after 
uh, mommy was found in the Swiss Alps, and he's known as Atsi, the Iceman. And what a find. They found 400 artifacts around this man for his, his body um, as he emerged from the ice. And they found out everything about him. They, they found out he was murdered. Uh, there was an arrow that had gone through his shoulder, and it hit an artery. Um, then he was hit on the head, and he had a hematoma. So somebody clearly killed him. And shortly before his death, he had had a meal. They were able to analyze that. Um, he had eaten uh, wheat and ibis and, I think, red deer. Um, they were able to get his DNA, and they couldn't find any uh, genetic link uh maternally to any race that exists today on earth but they were able to find on the father's side that um, the father's line came from the islands off of italy remarkable remarkable uh call it the world's oldest cold case an unsolved murder um yes always fascinating speaking with you mary again the website which is just uh, mind-blowing stuff each and every week, skyshipsovercashiers.com, skyships over cashiers, and cashiers spelled C-A-S-H-I-E-R-S, cashiers.com. And um, where do we get all of your uh, books? Uh, they're all available on Amazon. If you go to the website and open up Editor's Corner, you can click on uh, my books, and there's a brief summary of each one of them, plus a cover photo of each one of them. So uh, you can get a taste of what they're about before you go and invest with Amazon. Okay, hold on, Mary. Another quick timeout. Back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back, writer, researcher, and the founder of SkyshipsOverCashiers.com, Mary Joyce, is here. What about in North Carolina? Are there a lot of Bigfoot sightings? Uh, Not a lot compared to uh, the Rocky Mountains in the West, but yes, we do have them, and I live here in the mountains of western North Carolina, uh, so I've been able to investigate some cases and uh, been to a Bigfoot cave and seen the prints and heard them make their calls and... uh, um, so I've seen a lot of things firsthand that I wouldn't be able to do if I lived in Flatland. How are they organized? Are there multiple families that live together, or are they more solitary? Everything that I have personally come across with is that they have family units, and that's what you usually see. It's typically uh, a male, a female, and I've never heard of more than two kids at a time. Um, then there's evidence that they have a, um, a, like a clan type thing, but they don't come together in large groups in any noticeable way. Uh, four is the most that uh, any of us have been aware of at one time. So there's indications there's more within a, a certain area. And how long do the young typically stay with their parents? I honestly do not know that answer. Um, the Bigfoot apparently lived to be, you know, much older than we humans and uh, the the kids are with them from a very small size and you also see families where they look like they're adolescents or teenagers uh, so they they have an extended family life um, uh, over many years and are they territorial well not in the sense that dogs go and pee on trees and mark their territory 
but they live in regions. And um, I don't know if that is an answer to your question. Well, for example, will they defend their territory from other Bigfoot intruders? I don't know. I'm not aware of like clans of Bigfoot competing with each other. We've never seen any evidence of that. Um, if if we humans get too close, they will, in most cases, try to scare us away. And they will do that by making their sounds or by throwing stones, not at you directly, but around you. Um, and they'll make their howls and they'll give off an odor, uh, all just trying to keep you away from where they spend most of their time. Um, but we have had men, we have not had reports of people being attacked by it. Uh, however, at the very end of my book, I do include two stories where they have gotten violent. And in both cases, uh, it involves hunters with guns who are trying to shoot them. And if somebody was trying to shoot me, I probably would not react well either. What else have you learned about family life with Bigfoot? Um, let me tell you what I think is a really cute story. There is a gal who lives in South Carolina who has had uh, the ability to communicate with Bigfoot since she was a child. She is so good at it that she was invited to Siberia, uh, and that's a whole other story if you're interested in it, but because of her expertise. And she had a pony, and the pony would always get out. It would jump over the fence. It would bust the fence down. And so she finally resorted to getting a 250-foot-long boat rope, and every night she would tie it up, go to bed, and in the morning, the um, pony wouldn't be there. And it would be tied to trees in the woods, someplace in the woods around her house, always different places. And as the story continues, um, the water bucket and the feed bucket would be dragged out into the woods where the pony was, and... Uh, then she noticed that there were like muddy handprints on the pony. And what made the story really cute was that they, she would find muddy little butt prints on the pony. So clearly the Bigfoot were taking their little, little ones for rides on the pony. That's remarkable. It sounds so human. Let's talk about the language. You mentioned uh, communication and language. I interviewed a gentleman from British Columbia. I believe his name was Brian Bland, who believed that Bigfoot were communicating with him using glyphs that were created out of twigs and branches sort of bent into symbols and shapes. Do you know anything about these glyphs uh, and and what, how else are they communicating? Okay, I would regard that as like teaching um, preschoolers the, the essence or the essential beginning of language. Like we see symbols and they learn the letters um, in first grade. Um, communication can go way beyond that. They have the ability to uh, do what we would normally call telepathy, uh, but they call it mind speak in the Bigfoot circles. And so that's the preferred way that they like to communicate. Um, but they have a language all of their own. And you may be familiar with a man named Scott Nelson. He had 30 years um, experience as a linguistic cryptologist for the Navy. And so he was very familiar with figuring out codes and stuff in multiple languages. And he was able to get a recording of the Bigfoot. And in order to figure out their language, he had to slow it down. And when he could, when he would slow it down, they could actually, or he could actually uh, hear different um, languages woven into the Bigfoot language. 
Um, and some of it gets kind of, um, again, humorous. Um, let's see if I can remember what some of it was. There was one where uh, there was a, a male and a female Bigfoot, and they seemed to be having a discussion like a marital couple. couple. And the female says, are you talking to them? And the male says in very slow language, no, I won't. It was like um, she was telling him to keep his mouth shut and not talk to the humans. Uh, but he, you know, I, I found that kind of interesting. But they've been able to find pieces of language um, from different languages, uh, some in Japanese. In fact, uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but in my book, I give the connection where somebody can um, actually listen to a tape recording of the Bigfoot, and it truly sounds like samurai warrior, like a samurai warrior talking, and there's just no doubt about it. And this uh, particular man, Scott Nelson, had people that were familiar with other languages uh, who were able to identify some of this. So they pick up our languages to some extent, but it's said so fast that we can't really understand it unless the tape is slowed down. So how do you explain that? I don't know, are they mimicking the language or are they learning the language? How, how does that come about? I think they're picking up and actually learning the significance of at least some of the things we say. For example, one was caught saying, and I, it, it, I'm going to say it the, uh, phonetically, me, what, food, plen, food, which sounds like, I, like he wants food and he wants plenty of food. Me, what, food, plen, food. And that clearly sounds like English to me. Kind of a pigeon type of English, but nevertheless English. So, yeah, I think they... Um, uh, I think they uh, get real close to like campgrounds. Uh, many of them seem to be drawn to uh, people who are singing around campgrounds. Uh, they seem to like the music. Um, I know that when we uh, set up our first site where we wanted to put food out and we did a bunch of food experiments, um, playing a, a flute, uh, one of the wooden flutes, uh, was a way to get their attention and their curiosity. So we conducted um what I call a food experiment for a while, just to see what they like, what they didn't like. And uh, that proved to be very interesting also. Tell me a little bit more about that food experiment. What were your findings? Um, actually, in the book, I have pictures of about a, maybe a dozen different kinds of uh, vegetables and fruits that were put out for them. And I turn it into a quiz with the answers on another page. But I will tell you this, they absolutely love apples. Um but beyond testing them to see what they like to eat and what they don't like to eat. And when they don't like to eat something, they will try it and spit it out. So that gives you a pretty clear indication they don't like it. We also experimented with the kinds of containers we put the food in. And anything with a handle on it, like a, one of the things was a, a cooler for like a six-pack of beer. And they would tip it over, but they wouldn't put their hands in it. We put a basket out with the handle. Same thing, it would, they would tip it over, but they wouldn't put their hands in it. We did put out a basket without a handle, and they actually picked that up and took it, and it was found you know, down through one of the mountain laurel paths um, after they'd eaten all the food and they left the basket behind. But they must have some kind of bad experience where they've gotten their hand trapped in something. So uh, um, we found that an interesting piece of behavior, really. Did they leave anything behind, particularly DNA? Um, one, we, all right, this is where 
I kind of failed. Uh, the most, yeah, we got a hair sample, a very good hair sample. And we sent it off to a lab. And you have to know a little bit about Bigfoot DNA to fully appreciate this. The Bigfoot is um, half, it's the maternal side is human. The paternal side is some unknown um, primate that nobody has any record of. So in order to get proof that somebody is a Bigfoot, you have to have the paternal DNA, which only comes from nuclear DNA. Now, we sent off a hair sample. Our hair sample did not include any of the, um, what do you call it, the very base of the, of the hair follicle. Uh, and so they couldn't get any of the nuclear DNA. So it just came back as human. So I learned from an expensive experiment that, that you better make sure you've got the uh, nuclear DNA before you send off anything. All right, Mary. Got to run. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for me. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.